Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we cover everything we can about U.S. soccer, Americans in Europe, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. Not only that, but we also enjoy a nice pint or two during these chats. So pour yourself a beverage, if you're of age, of course, and let's get into it. Last week was all about recapping the September friendlies the men's national team just had and what they looked like under Greg Berhalter in his first matches back in charge. And as predicted, there were a few of you who didn't take too kindly to the overall support or assessment that I had on Greg's response against Oman, which is understood. This week, we are going to switch gears completely. We are going to do a first edition U.S. Men's National Team 2026 World Cup roster prediction. And we're going to see if we can look into the future in just under three years' time. With all of the significant change we saw from the 2018 World Cup qualifying cycle to the 2022 cycle, you would expect some turnover, some new faces, and some surprises. This is a near impossible task at hand, but we will do our best to make an effort at a 23-man roster prediction. In addition, we have more questions to answer, and we'll wrap things up with some final thoughts of the week as well. As always, though, let's kick today off with our beer feature, and you'll understand why I selected this particular city later in today's episode as it relates to U.S. soccer. But coming out of Atlanta, Georgia, I have Halfway Crooks beer, and specifically in my pint glass today, continuing with our Oktoberfest celebration, I've got a German Pilsner called Active Low. This is a crisp 4.9% in alcohol, and it's brewed with German malted barley, German hops, and good old Atlanta water. Halfway Crooks is located in the Summerhill neighborhood of Atlanta and opened back in summer of 2019. This, after delay after delay since their concept first came together back in 2015, and it's quickly become a popular spot in the area. They are owned by Sean Bainbridge, Tim Kalik, and their Belgian-born brewer, Jorn Van Ginderach. Even after finally opening and having to deal with the COVID pandemic shutdowns, they have still persevered through it all. Their concept is literally simple, really. Sell simple, technically perfect, refreshing beers. Sensible beer, as their owners call it. You can expect various ales and lagers, barrel-aged beers, and plenty of great food options as well. And while I haven't been fortunate enough to visit their taproom in person yet, judging by the pictures online, it looks like an incredible place to be. So, cheers to Halfway Crooks Beer. Thanks for being our feature this week, and I look forward to more U.S. soccer fans, including myself, visiting you in the near future. Well, here we go. The main point in today's conversation is who will make our 2026 World Cup squad? Who will miss out that is currently a main force in the squad? There's going to be a couple, no doubt. Is there a name on the list that we haven't even heard of? We just saw Christopher Lund in our September camp, and you were an absolute liar if you said you knew his name before that roster was released. Again, I know this is a way too early prediction, but the World Cup is less than three years away, and my plan is to look at this every few months to see what changes have been made, how far off are we, and ultimately, how much continuity, there's that word again, that this group actually has. We know right now one thing is almost certain. Greg Berhalter will be leading the squad in the USA during the World Cup. So, without further ado, let's hop into our list of players that are getting a ticket to the World Cup if selections were made today. Again, 
I am doing a 23-man list, which has always been the norm for World Cups. We had a 26-man roster in Qatar, and that could continue for 2026. But for now, we will go with 23, and we'll list a couple of alternates as well. I typically go through position by position when I do these predictions. And I'm still going to do that. But I want to list the absolute locks first, and then we can look at how many spots are left for grabs and then put them in positionally, if that makes sense. Also, this prediction assumes everyone's healthy and able to play, which we know inevitably will not be the case. So who are the locks? I have 10 names I'm fairly certain are automatic. Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tim Weah, Gio Reyna, Eunice Musa, Tyler Adams, Fuller and Balligan, Serginho Dest, Anthony Robinson, or Jedi Robinson as I'll refer to him from now on, Matt Turner. That's 10. I'm not sure that there's any arguments for any of these names at the moment. Remember, we have a very young core of players, and you will see the majority of these same players during this cycle. Usually you might see more from the U20 level or even the U17 national team rosters getting chances, but this cycle is going to be difficult for them to do so as there's only a few players who will eventually be phased out due to age or experience within the team currently. So 10 locks, 13 spots up for grab. Where's that going to come from? From a positional perspective, we're going to take three goalkeepers, which leaves 20 field players, arguably usually reserve eight spots for dis- for defenders, six spots for midfielders, and six spots for attackers, which does include wingers and strikers together, and some of which of them can be interchangeable in the midfield if absolutely necessary. I will also say I have about 40 to 50, maybe even 60 names that I can name today. It's a competitive group right now, but let's go ahead, look at the positional groups as we make these pos- uh, predictions. Matt Turner will still be leading this goalkeeping group for 2026. He has pulled far and above away from his competition. His backups, though, are very much up for grab. We've seen Ethan Horvath and Drake Callender most recently. Gaga Slonina was around in the summer. Zach Steffen's name is still there, too. Sean Johnson will not be on the list. Could our starting U20 keeper and Chris Brady move up and get a chance? Probably not, but you never know. There's a lot of factors that are making these two backup roles very much up for grabs. One is playing time. Horvath and Stefan in particular are stuck without a transfer and aren't in their current club's plans to play at all this season. Horvath was just left off the Premier League roster for Nottingham Forest after they signed another keeper to compete with Turner. Stefan has been off of Man City's radar for a long time and another injury during the summer hurt his chances to actually make a move. So, Both of these goalies are going to need to make winner moves to get their stock back up. Calendar is growing in popularity by the day. And at this point, I'm pretty comfortable in his growth to include him as a top three goalkeeper. So Nina is the popular choice after he moved out on loan from Chelsea to the Belgian league and is getting steady playing time. So for today, it's going to be Turner, Slonina and Calendar with Horvath and Stefan missing out. Onto the defense where I expect the most turnover or change for this entire roster. I've only included Dest and Jedi in the locks. I know people have been loud all week about Dest's defensive play in their Champions League or PSV's Champions League match against Real Madrid uh, midweek, but when he's with the U.S., he is a lock, and he should be. He offers too much, and currently, 
Jedi is the clear-cut starter on the left side. Tim Ream is a current locked-in starter and leader of this national team. But in 2026, he's going to be 38 years old. I can't expect him to be in the mix. I think it's a huge hope and ask, but Father Time's eventually going to catch up to him, and I have him off the World Cup roster right now. We have a ton of talented options behind him at the moment. Chris Richards, Austin Trusty, Mark McKenzie, Miles Robinson. You've got Cameron Carter-Vickers, who started with Ream at the World Cup in Qatar. Young guys in Jalen Neal, Josh Winder, Justin Shea, Brandon Craig. Can we expect someone like Walker Zimmerman to still be in the mix? We know a guy like John Brooks hasn't been around in years, and those are just center back prospects. Outside, you've got guys like Joe Scally, Brian Reynolds, Christopher Lund, as I mentioned, Dewan Jones, Jonathan Gomez, Caleb Wiley. We saw John Tolkien at the Gold Cup this summer, too. Sam Vines is another guy who was around last year before the final World Cup selections were made. I told you there's going to be a lot of names to list out, and I'm only giving eight spots in this defensive group, two of which I mentioned are destined Jedi. I think Richards has the potential to become our top center back for the 2026 cycle. I've been a big fan of Trusty over the last year, and I think he's eventually going to get starting minutes with Sheffield United in the Premier League this season. Jalen Neal was incredibly impressive at the Gold Cup this summer, and I expect more accelerated growth for him in the next three years. Same can be said for Winder, who made the move to Portugal this season. Will he have enough time to grow and develop into a top international player in time for 2026? I have to make surprises at some point, and here we go. I predict we have Richards, Trusty, Neal, and McKenzie as our center back selections. On the outside, I'm going with Dest, Jedi, Reynolds, and Caleb Wiley. I hate to drop guys like Ream, Scally, uh, Carter Vickers, even Lund after seeing him this month, but the reality is I am projecting potential with this prediction, and I think some of these tweeners are close to pushing through in this group. Into the midfield, where I suggested six spots would be given. In the locks, we had Reyna, Musa, McKinney, and Adams already covered. There are familiar names in this group in Luca De La Torre, Malik Tillman, Johnny Cardoso, James Sands. And we just saw Benja Kraminski and Tanner Tessman in the squad. There is a massive wave of younger talent trying to come through as well. Guys like Jack McGlynn, Diego Luna, Rokas Puskas. Paxton Aronson and Obed Vargas, who all featured for our U-20 World Cup team earlier in the summer. An intriguing name from the New England Revolution is Noel Buck, who just represented England at the U-19 level. He's someone who could be in the mix as well. I would love to see someone new come in and add value to our top four guys who seem pretty much irreplaceable at the moment. So in addition to Reyna, Musa, McKinney, and Adams, the final two tickets are going to Jack McGlynn and De La Torre. As much as I think the talent is there with all of these guys, it's just too tough to include everybody. Kremenski is the popular choice right now, and I know everyone has a different pathway to the national team, but I still think some of these other guys have more potential at the moment. McGlynn is the wild card for me. He's a regular contributor with the Philadelphia Union. He possesses a deadly left foot that no one else in this group has. He's got incredible vision to create opportunities, which has proven very useful for the Union and with our U-20 national team. He can also hit free kicks 
better than most. There will be a couple of alternates coming in from this group. So stay tuned. On to the attacking group. The locks from this were Pulisic, Weah, and Bala, which means only three roster spots are left for multiple individuals who deserve it. Within this group of options, we've got Ricardo Pepe, Brendan Aronson, Jesus Ferreira, Josh Sargent, who featured in the World Cup, started our first game. Also, a World Cup goal scorer in Haji Wright. Kevin Paredes, who we just saw this month. Cade Cowell, who was with the team all summer and recently didn't feature, but was with the group in September. Taylor Booth. Jordan Pifak just scored in the Bundesliga this past weekend. Alejandro Zendejas had a disappointing summer with the national team, but the potential for him is still there. Brandon Vasquez proved to be a super sub at the Gold Cup with a couple of goals scored. A guy that I was really high on, Daryl DK. Always seems to be on the verge of breaking through before long-term injuries take him away. There are also plenty of the MLS-loved so-called Greg guys that I won't speak into existence here. Goal scorers and attackers are a tricky bunch. You have to be in form in order to make a World Cup roster. It's very much a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately positional group. We saw it when Greg selected the 2022 squad, leaving Pepe and Pifak out for Wright and Ferreira. I'm leaving one guy out of this group who I said would end up being a must start last year if he kept his form up. It would be a big surprise if he didn't keep growing and wasn't a regular contributor with this national team. But again, there have to be surprises in every roster, and this is no different. Pulisic, Wea, and Ballo are in, as well as Pepe, Sargent, and the final selection is a dual national not yet within our program yet, a name I haven't mentioned in a very long time, who has been playing with Italy's U19 team recently, and that person is Luca Coliosho. Call it a gut feeling with this one. He would be a terrific win if we could sway him to join the U.S. over Italy and even Canada. I have no information to actually suggest that he's considering joining the U.S. senior squad, but He has played with the U.S. youth national teams, and I would be hard-pressed to believe that he can't help but see a solid opportunity within this U.S. program. And yes, this leaves out Brendan Aronson. I know that. That would be a crushing blow to him at 25 years old, but he would be the top alternate in this list. And who knows? If FIFA keeps 26-man rosters, then he's on it for sure. But in addition to Aronson, I want to name two other alternates to get us to that 26-man mark. And usually, I think there's six or seven to to have like a 30-man list. I'm not going to list off the other four. But I'm going to throw in Paredes in there because of his versatility and playing as a winger or a wing back. And the last option for me would have to be at center back where I would add in Carter Vickers. That means from our current starting group, only Ream is missing out. Other guys who are also on the 2022 World Cup roster, all of whom I didn't mention as part of the current player pool for a reason, like Kellen Acosta, Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan, DeAndre Yedlin, Sean Johnson, Aaron Long, and Shaq Moore, they all are going to miss out. All in all, if this were to be the 23-man World Cup roster for 2026, we would have 12 new guys make their first ever World Cup roster. Seems like a lot given how much continuity that we keep stressing in this program, but it also creates so much more competition internally, and that is something that we have desperately lacked over the years. 
There will be a lot of changes between now and June of 2026, and this original initial prediction is going to look pretty stupid. I'm sure of it. But I think we would all be pretty comfortable with it if the World Cup started tomorrow and this was the group selected. All right. Well, on to my favorite session of these episodes when we can do them, and that's answering some questions that have been sent over to Soccer Pints. And to start this week's session off, I received one not about American players, but about American owners. The question was, do you think American owners are ruining football clubs in America and overseas? And I love the question. Obviously, coming from a non-American listener, as we call it, and so- as we call it soccer here in the States. But regardless, the question is much appreciated and is actually an incredible one to think about. Do I think American owners are ruining soccer in America and overseas? I know I at least one American owner has been ruining their club for years, and that's my favorite in Manchester United. Chelsea have their American owner who has spent an absurd amount of money trying to fix their problems to no success. Liverpool and Arsenal, they seem to be doing okay with their American owners. Leeds United got themselves relegated via American ownership. There are so many others who have some American ownership or involvement at some level. It's not all doom and gloom. Look at the Hollywood scripted story of Wrexham and what it's done for their club and community. In America with Major League Soccer, it's become more and more popular with more market share than ever and massive TV rights deals. And now you've got Messi in the league. But my take is this. It's more of a business to an American owner than it is about actual results on the pitch. Disagree with me if you would like. I know there are a few owners who genuinely care about their clubs and the results and making sure that their fans are happy, but more times than not, it's an investment to create more wealth for themselves. And as long as they're doing that, that is all that matters to them. I don't think they are ruining soccer specifically. They're just ruining some of the most tradition storied clubs in the world. Manchester United is a shell of themselves. Bad decision after bad decision, following in Chelsea's footsteps at the moment to being a joke of a club currently. I hate to say that, but it's the truth. People are still attending matches, buying merchandise, watching on television. That creates more money for the owners, so they're happy with their investment and the rest of the fan complaints are just noise to them. Do I think that they want to win and be uh, successful? Of course. Of course they do. But it's defined much differently as a multimillionaire or billionaire owner than it is to you and I who just want our clubs to win everything that they play. Great question. Up next, what do you think of the announcement that U.S. soccer is relocating their headquarters to Atlanta? So this goes back to why I decided to feature Halfway Crooks beer this week from Atlanta. I love the announcement. It makes too much sense. It's better than Chicago. It should create a more complete uh, national team program for all programs affiliated within U.S. soccer. Easier travel is Atlanta has one of the biggest airport hubs in the entire world. Arthur Blank, who owns Atlanta United and the Atlanta Falcons, is funding $50 million to help create not only a headquarter for U.S. soccer, but a national training center as well. I had heard a lot of rumors about potential coaches and staff members refusing to relocate to Chicago to work within the U.S. soccer programs, which was a mandatory requirement that U.S. soccer set for all of their staff. Atlanta should be an easier sell for future applicants or candidates. 
Overall, with what Atlanta has shown with their support of Atlanta United since they began play five or six years ago, I think it's amazing and it's well-deserved. All right, last question for today, and I'll keep it short and sweet. Why don't you talk about Major League Soccer more? It's a fair question to ask. I've touched on this in the past. It's not that I don't like to talk about MLS. As someone pretty much born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina, I watch every Charlotte FC match that I can. In fact, I have the Apple MLS TV package to ensure that I could watch any MLS game if I wanted to. But there just isn't enough about American players in MLS contributing to their clubs on a regular basis for me to consistently chat through in these episodes. As we get closer to the MLS playoffs next month, I'm going to give a summary of the season. Which Americans contributed most to their clubs? The standouts. Which players need transfers overseas, including a lot of the U-20 guys that I just mentioned earlier. But until that point, it'll be similar coverage until more Americans are standing out with their clubs in this league. All right, on to the final thoughts of the week, and let's talk MLS to kick it off. See, look at that, more MLS coverage. I mentioned last week that I would be headed to Charlotte, and on Saturday night, I was able to attend the Charlotte FC versus DC United matchup. I was able to take all three of my daughters to their first ever major sporting event, and seeing them be into the match was probably the lone highlight of the entirety of the game itself. It was an incredibly lackluster nil-nil draw. Not a ton of action to talk about. The product overall on the pitch was dreadful. One of the worst matches of soccer that I have had to watch at the professional level. I had high hopes and expectations after having so many great experiences in the past, but this just left a lot to be desired. At least my daughters had a good time, though. And at least Champions League soccer returned to action this week with the first matches of this year's competition taking place. Several Americans were able to feature for their clubs, including Pulisic, Musa, Des, Tillman, Pepe, and Brennan Aronson. I'm sure I'm probably missing somebody else talking out loud here, but I love this competition. I've said it before. These are the best clubs in the world playing for supremacy amongst everyone else. Year after year, it's exciting, and this week was no different. So if you have a chance to catch any matches, please do. And finally, another one just short and sweet from uh, Champions League coverage this week. It made its rounds through social media, but I was certainly a little dumbfounded by it. Jesse Marsh was a sideline reporter for CBS Sports or Paramount Plus for the AC Milan-Newcastle matchup on Tuesday. The same Jesse Marsh who was managing Leeds United last season before being fired in the middle of their disaster year. The same Jesse Marsh, who was considered a top candidate for the U.S. men's national team head coaching job. All hearsay, I'll add, and nothing concrete to confirm true interest, but it's the same Jesse Marsh who said he wanted to focus on his club coaching future instead of that U.S. men's national team job right now. How has he become a sideline reporter rather than working as a club coach somewhere in some capacity. I don't know much about his story over the past six months, but I find it really hard to believe that you go from winning championships in Austria to managing a club in the Bundesliga to managing a club in the Premier League to now being a sideline reporter for CBS. Someone help me make some sense of that. All right, that's it for today's episode. Please let me know how poorly my 2026 World Cup roster prediction is. I appreciate you letting me list off so many names and sticking through the entire episode for it. Also, appreciate the questions that keep coming in and a reminder that 
If you have a question for the show or would like a specific topic to be discussed on the show, please send me a message on Instagram or email me directly at will.clark at thesoccerpints.com. Next week, we will answer more questions that come through as well, and we'll spend a bit more time looking into American performances so far through the first six weeks of European seasons. And we're going to take a look into those October friendlies that are quickly approaching against Germany and Ghana. Also, the U.S. women's national team beat South Africa last night 3-0 in Julie Ertz's send-off game. If you missed it, you'll get another chance as they will once again be in action on Sunday the 24th in what will be Megan Rapino's final appearance as she heads into a retirement as well. As I said last week, I think these appearances are pointless from a soccer standpoint, but cheers to them for their careers and the contributions to the women's game. Lastly, Big thanks again to Halfway Crooks for being our beer feature this week. Until next time, cheers, my friends.